Last time, we began the episode with Molly Isis, a fictionalized wife of Adonai Jezek, the king of Jerusalem. Unfortunately for Molly Isis, she doesn't survive her imprisonment and death at the hands of her demonized husband. But in this episode, we begin with one who not only survives, but thrives with the invasion of the Israelites. We fast forward in our timeline 30 years to tell a story, and then we'll regroup back to 1400 B.C., on the plains of Jericho. Salmon was sitting with his wife in their new home in the city of Bethlehem. Salmon looked from a distance, sitting on the porch of their, their new home, and watched their son, Boaz, who was chopping wood at a distance. He's a good lad, isn't he? He said to his wife. His wife looked at him. They were both sitting on the chairs next to each other. She reached to hold his hand, with an endearing look, she said, he's a good boy. I don't have any concerns about him, Salman said. I don't either, she said, as her eyes began to water. He looked at her. You're crying again. She laughed through her wetting eyes. God has really redeemed us. And to think we were where we are at today. That you love me and care for me. I thank God every day. Come here, he said, as he embraced her by putting his arm around her. They sat there for a while until a noise came from inside the house. It's the boys, of course, Salmon said. I will check them, he said as he got up and walked back into the house. Wiping all the tears from her eyes, composing herself, she got up and walked out to see her son, Boaz. When she got closer, she could see how many piles of wood he had created for the upcoming winter. This house would be prepared for the elements this winter. No one could say this house was not wisely prepared. I am proud of you, she said. You have really learned hard work from your father. Boaz looked at her. I have so much more to learn from him. He is my hero. He's not only a war hero, but he is my father. She smiled at him as he picked up another log and prepared it for piercing. He stopped abruptly. He said, I say all that, Mom, but what wisdom does my teacher have for me today? She looks back at Salmon, who'd stepped out of the house and was sitting in the chair, watching them from a distance. Her eyes watering again. Be faithful to God. Don't forget my words. Keep from sin. Wait for the perfect woman. Remember, Boaz, you are a redeemer. God will arrange it for you. And remember this. Only marry the one that accepts your covering wholeheartedly. With that, she turned and began to walk back. Boaz smirked. Mom, you say that every day. Anything else, mother? She stops and looks up to the sky and to the east as if lost for a minute. She turns and walks back and looking directly into Boaz's eyes. The tears are gone and her face is serious. Yes, son, remember this. God is your fortress. God is always your fortress. He is your refuge and your strength. Remember this and teach it to your children and their children and their children. God is your fortress.
It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search out a matter is the glory of kings. This is the Message to King podcast. Episode 32, The Fall of Jericho. Here is the short but profound biblical account and equivalent of Joshua's mission debriefing prior to the attack on Jericho, but more like Joshua's encounter with Jesus. It's really important to spend the right time here because this is the Lord Jesus himself coming in the identity of a warrior and commander of the Lord's army. Here's the account, the setting outside of Jericho, probably early in the morning, and Joshua was doing some recon work when a stranger approaches him. Joshua 5.13 Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied, but as the commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. All right, it states a man showed up with a drawn sword. It didn't say an angel. It said a man showed up with a drawn sword. Who is this man? To be clear, there's lots of opinions and who this character is and lots of speculation. Some say it's an angel of the Lord. Others say it's a pre-incarnate Jesus. For the sake of the podcast, we're going to be stating this is a pre-incarnate Jesus, just like prior to Sodom and Gomorrah. And why do we believe this is Jesus? One, it's a man, not an angel. Two, he's the commander of the Lord's army. And Jesus said in Matthew twenty-six fifty-three, Do you think I cannot call on my Father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? Isn't that powerful? Immediately at his disposal, twelve legions of angels. It says one destroyed the Assyrian army of over 150,000 later on. These guys are amazing, so let's not forget it. Number three, he allowed worship. He allowed Joshua to bow down to him. Angels are not allowed to be worshipped. Demonic angels desire worship, but this is forbidden by the Lord's angels. He allowed him to fall face down and worship him, and he told him to remove his sandals, for the place was holy. Now there's a strange answer to the question, are you for us or for our enemies? The answer is, I am neither. It's a really interesting answer. Why do he say this? Well, that's clearly Jesus. He, he never really answers questions directly. He's implying a, a few possible things. Um, one of them I get is that he's saying, I'm not for you. I am with you. Not just for you. In fact, God would later say, I am, will never leave you nor forsake you. Implying, I am always with you. But at this moment with Joshua, Joshua has the ability to see him at this very moment. Now, I have to believe this is one of Joshua's defining moments with God. To see him face to face, it's almost similar to the time in the tent of meeting. And everything in Joshua changed at this moment. If he had any fear, it disappeared instantly with the presence of Jesus. Any healing needed occurred just at that moment. Any lack of confidence was removed. Full empowerment and revitalization occurred at that moment. 
He was given the mind of Christ to have knowledge and insight, and above all, that desired quality of Joshua, courage. An impartation of greater courage was upon Joshua. Ask anyone who has truly encountered the living God, Jesus, everything changes. All through history, those who encounter the living God, Jesus, are radically changed. Everything flows from relationship, and this is Joshua's encounter with the living God. This is why obedience to the radical command that follows is so simple. They just saw the water stop. Enemy kings have been defeated. And Jesus just showed up to Joshua and he asked them to do something strange like march around the city for seven days and say nothing for six days. No problem, Jesus. We can do that. Greater are the number and forces for me than against me. And this is the command. Joshua 6, 1. Now the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went out, and no one came in. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout, and then the wall of the city will collapse, and the army will go up, everyone straight in. So God gave Joshua a ridiculous command, and I'm sure if he didn't just see Jesus, it would have been a lot more difficult to obey. But then again, marshalling and fielding forces has been a part of warfare for years. Take, for example, the Mongols. They retreat for days, knowing the enemy was in striking distance, only to lure them into a trap after days of faking a retreat. It may have not been such a ridiculous command to soldiers trained for battle. They would be marching and blowing horns around Jericho. Jericho was one of the oldest cities in the world. It was a principality in itself, defended with 25-foot-tall walls built by giants and Nephilim. It was strategically located on a fertile plain and was very wealthy and could hold out for any siege for months, maybe years, and God chose to take it out first. This was his strategy to march around it once for six days and seven times on the seventh day, and God would tear down the walls. Showing or revealing no lack of faith, Joshua did exactly what the Lord commanded. Here's the account on the first six days, Joshua 6, 6. So Joshua, son of Nun, called the priest and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and have seven priests carry trumpets in front of it. And he ordered the army, Advance! March around the city with an armed guard going ahead of the Ark of the Lord. And when Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets before the Lord went forward, blowing their trumpets, and the Ark of the Lord's Covenant followed them. The armed guard marched ahead of the priest who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard followed the ark. All this time the trumpets were sounding, but Joshua had commanded the army, Do not give a war cry, do not raise your voices, do not say a word until the day I tell you to shout, and then shout. So he had the ark of the Lord carried around the city, circling it once, and then the army returned to camp and spent, night, spent the night there. Joshua got up early the next morning, and the priest took up the ark of the Lord, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets went forward and marched before the ark of the Lord and blowing the trumpets. The armed men went ahead and the rear guard followed the ark of the Lord while the trumpets kept sounding. So on the second day they marched around the camp 
around the city once and returned to the camp. They did this for six days. On the seventh day, breaking their own Sabbath and not resting, God sent them into battle. Joshua 6:15. On the seventh day, they got up and at daybreak marched around the city seven times in the same manner, except that on that day they circled the city seven times. The seventh time around, when the priest sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the army, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall be spared, because she hid the spies we sent. But keep away from the devoted things, so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them into the camp. Otherwise you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. And when the trumpet sounded, the army shouted, and at the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. So everyone charged in, and they took the city. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men, women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. All right, so let's talk archaeology. If anyone wants a clear picture of the world today, just look at the archaeological findings at Jericho. Everyone agrees there's a layer of earth which reveal a very serious fire which leveled a city. Also, most agree that there was a wall that fell outward, not inward. Here's the interesting part. Believers who research the old city of Jericho and the archaeological digs there confirm it's the correct time period of Joshua, while non-believers state it is another era of time disproving Joshua. It is fascinating to see the back-and-forth research of believers versus non-believers trying to research the archaeological digs at Jericho. Now, let's focus on the walls. The walls fell outward, not inward. In a normal siege, walls would fall inward. What is fascinating about this, picture this with me. The walls were built upon a hill. The city was built upon a hill. The walls fell downward and out creating a ramp for the Israelites to march up and into the city. The walls which were meant to keep them out fell down, forming a ramp for them. What was meant to keep them out was used to help them to obtain their breakthrough. Doesn't this sound familiar? Romans 8, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Or Genesis 50:20, when Joseph was being restored to his brothers, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Here are the concluding verses of the scene, which declare both the curse and also state the fame of Joshua. At that time, Joshua pronounced this solemn oath. Cursed before the Lord is the one who undertakes to rebuild the city. Jericho, at the cost of his firstborn son, he will lay its foundations, and at the cost of his youngest, he will set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame spread throughout the land. If any foreign leaders were excited with the death of Moses, thinking a leadership vacuum showed up in the Israelite camp, they were now even more terrified of the Israelites, for Joshua was now their leader. And his fame was spreading throughout the world. Also, in one of the most clear examples of the power of spiritual curses, is Joshua's declaration of the rebuilding of the city of Jericho. 
Hundreds of years later, a man from Bethel named Hael, possibly under the direction of King Ahab of Israel, will rebuild the walls and the city of Jericho. The cost of this action will be the death of two of his sons. And it's in 1 Kings 16.34. It's some really freaky stuff. I mean, really freaky stuff. His curse is prophetic. And maybe when we get there, we'll spend some more time on this specific curse. Also, let's remember that command of first fruits, that everything was to be destroyed in Jericho. Nothing was to be kept for themselves, especially the idols and valuable artifacts, which will play into the next episode. All right, so how did the walls actually fall? There are hundreds of theories on what exactly happened. Did God send an earthquake? Did his angels knock the walls down? Was it the power of 600,000 soldiers marching in unison in step with fault lines? That's an interesting one. I also like the message of the power of the tongue. What happens when 600,000 men say nothing for six days and shout and the power of the tongue in fasted speech for six days, the blast from the creative force of so many empowered believers was enough to rock the world. And that's a, that's a pretty cool one, but they're all good ideas. Um, and there's so many possibilities of what actually happened. King David, the great, great, great grandson of Rahab, which we'll discuss soon, wrote most of the Psalms in the Bible. Over and over, he declared, God is my fortress. This is stated over and over by David himself. For this reason, and the fact that Jesus himself approached Joshua prior to the battle, Jesus himself, the fortress and mighty conqueror of the Lord, I would like to present that for this reason, Jesus did it himself to make the point that he is our fortress. Whether he just said walls fall or he commanded angels to make them fall, we, we will only know in heaven one day. Or could it be he shook the earth with an earthquake because he declares, I will shake everything that can be shaken. God's declaration was twofold. You can't keep me out and I am your fortress. No man-made structure can suffice. It was important Israel obeyed and equally important that God spoke his message, I am your fortress. God can break through any wall man has built to keep him out, and nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. We will see with Rahab and some of the worst characters in all of history that Romans 8.38 is so true. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. To conclude this episode of Message to Kings, I'm going to let the story of Rahab speak for itself. Just prior to the complete burning down of Jericho, Rahab is rescued. According to some archaeological findings, there was a part of the wall that did not collapse. This would have been the section of the wall Rahab lived. Here is her account, Joshua 6.22. Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, Go into the prostitute's house and bring her out and all who belong to her in accordance with your oath to her. So the young men who had done the spying went in and brought out Rahab, her father and mother, her brothers and sisters, and all who belonged to her. They brought out her entire family and put them in a place outside the camp of Israel. 
Then they burned the whole city and everything in it, but they put the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord's house. But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her. Because she hid the men, Joshua had sent his spies to Jericho, and she lives among the Israelites to this day. I mean, imagine what's going on here. The Bible miniseries does a pretty good job. There she is with her family, and her world has turned upside down, completely upside down. She's standing there terrified. All she's ever known, with the exception of her family, was gone, dead, or burning. The mighty city was burning, walls collapsed, surrounded by these strange men from another land, with darkness closing, the fire hot from the city. She had to be terrified, scared, and overwhelmed. But she was alive and redeemed. You could spend lots of time just thinking, what's up with Rahab? I mean, why her? What's the big deal? Why would God pick her out of the whole city of Jericho to live? The answer is simple, and it's profound. The answer is grace. Not only is Rahab saved from prostitution and demonic worship and certain death at Jericho, but she receives grace by being redeemed and set free from her demons. Rahab is one of the greatest examples of grace in the entire Bible. Despite her harboring the spies and declaring God's power, she was full of inequity and sin to the hilt. She was a prostitute and a demonic priestess, most likely. God chose to save her. It's really ludicrous that God would save her, especially in the rough time period that she lived. It makes no sense. Many historic church leaders have tried to whitewash Rahab out to be a little nicer and less profane, but this is not the case. God could have chosen anyone, but he chose Rahab. Mercy is defined as not getting what you deserve. For example, you're an orphan and you get caught stealing and a judge lets you off the hook. That's mercy. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Grace is extravagant and unwarranted a gift beyond measure. Following the same example, you are an orphan and you get caught stealing something and a judge decides to not only let you off the hook, but he decides to take you into his house and provide for you and even adopts you. One of the greatest examples of grace in the media today is the play and movie Les Miserables. In a famous scene that sets the tone of the entire movie, the criminal John Funk John robs a priest of his fine silvery to survive. And after being caught, the police bring Jean Vaudjan to the priest, and the priest declares that the dishes were not stolen, but given to Jean Vaudjan, and he has ransomed his life with them. He should have gone to prison for life, but instead he was blessed. He received what he didn't deserve. I'll put a link um, to the clip on the Facebook page. Rahab is the same way. She didn't deserve to be blessed and protected. But God's extravagance doesn't just end with her survival. Remember that scarlet cord that hung outside her window on the city wall? This is the extravagance of God. If you ever read the Bible, most likely you skip the genealogies. It is no wonder. What purpose did they serve? Well, it makes for really boring, fast reading but fascinating history all the same. Let me explain. This is a part of the genealogy of Jesus, Matthew 1, 5. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, 
Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David. This is where we get this scene at the beginning of the podcast. The wife of Salmon is Rahab, and the mother of Boaz. Did you catch that? You think Rahab just lived a normal, obscure life? No. God chose her from a heathen nation and put her in the bloodline of King David and later Jesus Christ himself, the Redeemer of all mankind. Solomon, from the tribe of Judah, married her, and they had a son, Boaz, the same Boaz from the book of Ruth. Boaz and Ruth have a son named Obed, who has a son named Jesse, whose eighth son was David, the greatest king in all of Israel's history. Remember the scarlet cord from the window? That's representation of the bloodline of Jesus. That first prophecy in the garden, God is alluding to it with the scarlet thread, the prophecy to Eve, and the seed of Eve will crush the head of the snake. Jesus would be the seed that comes from the root or stump of Jesse, from the bloodline of King David. The Jordan River stopping at the town of Adam and the scarlet thread of Rahab are both representation of the curse partially ending in this generation of Joshua and the permanent restoration of man through Jesus on the cross. Hope you enjoyed this episode of Message to Kings. Stay tuned next week as we discuss sin in the camp and the military genius of Joshua at AI. Feel free to visit or share the Facebook page and leave a comment or question. Or if you want to chat, email me at messagetokings at gmail.com. Tune in next week to the Message to Kings podcast.